in a lot of ways, our phones, our watches now, these things are designed to be what they used to be. So our phones are now our computers, and they're designed very much the same way that that laptops were designed, and laptops are derived from these old desktops, and the desktops were things that you know were a much uh, rarer commodity, and they were used by more people and had longer lives. Right now, your average cell phone lasts less than than two years, and so really, we should be designing these electronic devices to be disposed of and or recycled rather than as these semi-durable, completely non-recyclable components. And you think about your Tupperware, I bet, you know, your Tupperware in your cabinet, uh, uh, no, at least mine is, is significantly older than my phone or my computer, etc. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. If you've ever played tennis, popped out an iPhone, or put on a new pair of Nikes, you've seen things are getting smaller, stronger, and more powerful. That's the evolution not just of science, but of material science, making things smaller, better, stronger, lighter, faster. That's what powers much of today's economic and product-based economy. We're pumping things out faster than ever, and yet producing better materials always leads to more optimal outcomes. And today, we have someone on who's shifting the paradigm entirely. We have John Leto, co-founder and president of Vorbeck, a high-tech graphene material company that's raised $20 million to date to bring the promising future of graphene to the world. So they have several product lines, including antennas, RFIDs, wearables, conductive inks, and of course, composites. This is a really interesting interview because we dive into the ins and outs of graphene, what it's like to partner with a university-based research company, how graphene is poised to transform so many industries, why it's taken so long for graphene to come to market and where science typically fails, the exciting advances in metamaterials and material science and what it means for society, and why better tires trump better batteries when it comes to fuel efficiency and reducing pollution. And now without further ado, I give you John Leto. Do you run a business or blog and hate hosting and managing your site? If you do, check out WP Engine, the managed WordPress hosting company, 500,000 plus sites trust to simplify everything. They've got a special offer just for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash WP Engine, you'll get 35 free premium studio press themes with any purchase. Look at our site. I couldn't do this design on my own. You need themes. These guys help you manage everything and simplify it. Save yourself a ton of time and headache in the process. Disruptors.fm slash WP Engine. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So sometimes it's fun to start these off with a, a personal story. And I hear you're dyslexic and had some trouble in a Princeton exam. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, um, well, fortunately, that was identified in me, dyslexia, when I was in grade school. But uh, somehow I did end up at Princeton and was sitting in the middle of a classics exam and scratching my head trying to figure out the difference between how to spell how and who. And must have spent a good five minutes of my exam time just trying to figure out that one word so or the difference between the two. But, uh, you know, I do think it, it helped me sort of slow down and, and focus on 
the problem at hand, even when it's just spelling a word. And I think that's, that's impacted my technical work as well, I think. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because having a, a handicap like that, now you're running Vorbeck, you've raised $20 million. You're one of the leading graphene companies. Have you, have you had any experiences or how has that impacted you building to where you are today? You know, I, I don't think it's been a, a real negative in terms of that. I think the adaptations, like I said, in terms of just focusing and, and slowing down and trying to get things right is what has driven a lot of uh, how I approach things and, and the technical side of, of work. And so, you know, I think that's, that's something that hopefully people appreciate in terms of the fact that things are done with a, a level of attention and, and detail. I think they definitely do. And yet at the same time, let's play like the flip side and look at look at graphene and metamaterials. There's a lot of very important materials to humanity's future that seems as if they've taken a long time to get here. Can you tell us a little bit more about graphene and the history? Uh, sure. You know, I wasn't involved in the very, very early days of graphene. A lot of that work was done at a number of different universities and including the University of Manchester, uh, where the two physicists there won the Nobel Prize for their work studying graphene back in uh, 2010. And the original work was done in 2004 and 2005. There are also groups at other universities, including you know Columbia and Georgia Tech and, and also Princeton University that were working on similar things in, in parallel. And so I knew one of the professors uh, up at Princeton who was doing a lot of the early work on, on graphene there. And so that's how I got involved in the graphene world. I think with any fundamental new materials technology, you have to just factor on it, taking a long time to, to reach market. You're starting so far back in the value chain. You're starting really at the very, very beginning of the value chain with uh, the material that you make a specific component out of, and then the component has to go into a system, and then the system has to go into the final good, et cetera. And so with that in mind, you sort of know it's going to be a long slog getting into taking materials technology commercial. And they, they say with startups, it takes twice as long and twice as much money at the very least. And I imagine with materials, it's even significantly longer. What is graphene? Can you kind of define it and give us a broad overview? Sure. Uh, you know, graphene is, is a sheet of carbon that is a single atom thick. And I always use the analogy that graphite, from which uh, graphene derives its name and many of the graphene uh, materials that are made are derived from from graphite. So graphite is a ream of paper where you have all of the carbon sheets neatly lined up in a crystallographic order. And then graphene is the single sheet out of that ream of paper. So when you have graphite and you're writing with your pencil on a piece of paper, the, the graphite is soft and that's because those layers slide over each other and smear and leave a mark on the, on the paper. And with graphene, much like the, the sheet of paper, the individual sheet itself is very strong and in graphene's case also has a number of unique electrical and thermal properties. Can you get into those a little? Sure. Uh, one of the things about uh, graphene is electrons uh, moving in graphene have a very high mobilities. And so in pristine graphene, uh, the electrons can move within that sheet uh, very freely and very fast. But graphene is a, is a semi-metal. It's not um, a metal as you would think of copper or, or silver. And what that means on, from a practical standpoint is that there aren't a lot of those free electrons uh, in graphene zipping around. And so 
on one hand, you have this very high electron mobility, which leads to very fast movement of electrons, very fast heat flow through those electrons, et cetera. But on the other hand, you don't have uh, many of them. And so when you look at, say, uh, carrying large currents just as a traditional conductor through graphene, that's not necessarily the raw material's uh, strength. But there are ways to dope it and to add electrons into the structure, et cetera, to give it more electrons so that it's carrying it has more electrons to carry current, etc. Hey, Matt here. Are you getting a little bit caught up in the weeds and the technical details? Don't worry. We're about to get to the big picture, the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the episode. John's an incredibly smart guy, and it's hard to not talk technical details. This is an incredible interview. We're about to jump into some really interesting stuff, so please stick with us. And I know the reason why people are excited about graphene is the strength to weight ratio. If you can make something stronger and lighter, you can either build taller or launch farther type. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the actual science behind that? What some of the what some of the numbers or ratios look like, and why that matters? Yeah, I mean, graphene uh, fundamentally, and depending on the type of steel you're looking at, is 200 to 300 times stronger than than steel on a on a weight basis. So you're talking about really exceptional strength to weight ratios. You know, fundamentally, the material, those carbon atoms in that sheet structure, are all aromatically bonded. So they're uh, more strongly bonded than than typical single bonds in, in polymers, et cetera. And that leads to the, the strength that you see uh, in graphene. But from a practical standpoint, you think about having this single sheet of material and trying to figure out ways to distribute a load or to carry a load in a material that is so small and so thin. And that's where, from a practical standpoint, there's, there's still a lot of work to do in how graphene can be best used to really take the, the incredible fundamental properties and convert it into practical ones. And you know, just on a, on a company level, we were talking to a customer one time, and they, uh, they mentioned that, hey, you're the first people to come in here and talk about the properties of the graphene composite that is usable rather than just the incredible fundamental properties of graphene as an isolated material. Um, and I think that's where, uh, again, that, that gap in time and, and evolution of technology comes in with the fundamental materials technology. It can have brilliant properties in a lab or under a microscope, but how do you translate that into something truly usable? That takes a lot of work. Ah, uh, yes. The entrepreneur, engineer, scientist paradigm. We can do it, but should we? So often, technical folks get caught up in the technical details and want to talk about, oh, this would be cool to do, or we can do this, or we can do that. But often you'll see that these are the same type of individuals who frequently miss deadlines and aren't able to deliver. They're not making something useful and bringing it to market. John and his team, and most successful startups, find a problem fix it, and then they make that thing happen. They don't just talk about the solution. That's why it's important. That's why we're having John on here to talk about graphene, because if you are going to build a business, you're going to have to deliver. Would a good analogy be to think about a bridge? You can either have a tunnel through a rock, or you can have a truss-type bridge so people can visualize the crossing members. It creates more strength while having, having less weight and volume. Would that be a good analogy for how graphene needs to be able to be used? We need to figure out what those structures are. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I the the one potential issue there is just the the graphene is is such a thin; it's a two dimensional structure, and so I always think of it like a, a membrane. Uh, you know, you take uh, something more like a tent, 
and making the material that that uh, tent fabric is made out of much, much stronger and those types of applications uh, for it. So I know you guys partnered with Princeton to, to make this happen. What's it like working with university research labs and bringing product to market? Well, I mean, I think the work with a university depends on the university and it depends on, on the people within the university you're working with. You know, we've had just a, a fantastic experience there working with, with Princeton and with uh, Ilhan Oxai, who is one of the original inventors along with uh, Bob Prudhomme and, and Dudley Seville up at, up at Princeton. And so, and, and that's made a huge amount of difference, being able to get the, the insights from people who are able to think really deeply about a problem and really understand the fundamental issues. That adds a lot to, to a young company. So, but in terms of, you know, practical work with, with the university, et cetera, you know, the folks we work with at, at Princeton are engineers. And so that does help from a, a practicality standpoint. Uh, these are, are fairly practical people to begin with, even though they are in academia. And so we don't have quite that same mismatch that you might anticipate between the pure academic life and the life of someone trying to produce a product and, and get it out there. How would you recommend or advise startups or founders that were interested in commercializing university-based tech? Would you say that that's a, that's a special or strong route to go, or would that be something that you would typically avoid? No, I mean, I think that's a great way to go with starting up a, a company and, and having a, a firm technical foundation uh, to the work that you're doing. I think the concern is always that when you look at academic work, how will it translate into a practical and commercial venture? And that can be everything from you know, a process for making a material in this case. And we were fortunate that the, the process that the Princeton was working with was very scalable and was very practical, which is not always the case with something coming out of, of a university lab or even a big corporate lab. And so that's, that's sort of step one, is that the results can be incredibly interesting. Uh, it can be much more complex to, to translate just through either process or the way it's fabricated, et cetera. And that's sort of usually the first chasm to cross. And, you know, then there's the work with the university and, and the, the individual professor. And that usually just comes down to, you know, policies and personalities in terms of licensing agreements and, you know, how great someone is to work with. How do you guys think about go-to-market and which markets or problems to tackle first? Do you suffer from shiny object syndrome, jumping from one thing to another, one excitement to the next? This is something that can plague entrepreneurs and creators. This is something that John apparently is really good at avoiding. He's about to outline exactly how Vorbeck went through all of the possible opportunities that they could do to bring graphene to market, the best markets, where to go, and how they analyzed exactly which areas to start with first. This is really, really well put together and something I recommend anyone, not just entrepreneurs, but anyone that's trying to do something meaningful in the world, listens to, thinks about, and then applies to their own work? Um, well, you know, when we first got started, we the blessing and the curse of graphene is that there are probably a thousand different applications for the material. And we uh, had one meeting with a large customer and they had 50 people in the room. And the joke was after the presentation that, well, there are 50 people in the room and probably a hundred different ideas of what to do with it. And so, you know, we, in essence, took all of those different applications and just everything we could think of with 
for using using graphene and broke it down on a couple of different uh, metrics. One of which is where could the material have the the most significant technical impact, truly differentiate itself from what else was available. The second one was you know, what were the resources required to then take that specific area to market, uh, whether it be scale uh, of the market or how it needs to be incorporated into a composite to be useful in that market and, and application, et cetera. And what were our abilities, both technical and financial, to provide those resources and to get that that market. And then the third area was really could the material be used profitably in the market? And the fourth was probably the most important in the end is what what is the cycle time of that market? So when we look at the different industries that, that graphene can go into, it can go into everything from you know satellite and aerospace applications to uh, consumer electronics applications to uh, building material and and you know truck tire applications. And so each of those has a very different cycle time in terms of how fast the industry moves, how fast the industry player moves, how risk adverse that industry is. And some of those markets take decades to develop. And obviously for a startup, that's not the first one you want to go after. Absolutely. But there is that chicken and the egg of if you go after one, you're able to build up your capacity to go after others. Which which industries did you focus on? And of course, outside of the industries you focused on, which other ones do you think are the most promising or important for humanity? You know, I think the one of the ones that we focused on pretty quickly was in electronics um, and consumer electronics and, and wearable electronics in particular. And that was a multi-step process in and of itself. So taking the graphene, we then started to develop uh, a line of inks and coatings using the graphene as a, as a pigment and creating uh, conductive inks uh, utilizing graphene in those ink formulations. And so getting the formulation right and then getting it to be uh, printable. And then because graphene has different properties than the traditional metals, copper, aluminum, silver used in the industry, uh, developing new components. Uh, designed specifically with graphene. Uh, but the really compelling thing about using graphene in electronics and specifically wearable electronics are that it is it can create these very, very thin, very flexible, and very strong electrical circuits that can be printed on a whole wide range of surfaces. And the other part that we think is a little overlooked about graphene is even though it, it is a good conductor uh, of both heat and electricity, it's not a metal chemically. And so it doesn't oxidize and corrode like uh, a metal would. And so you can use it in very aggressive environments. Um, for example, in, in clothing where you're uh, exposed to corrosive environments in terms of water and sweat and salt and also extreme mechanical stress, et cetera. Uh, so that was, was, I think, just a market where the properties of graphene, the way we were able to develop it into that ink, just fit really, really well. And the cycle time is fast in, in consumer electronics, right? <laughs> New things are coming out every, every few months in product lines. And so that fit as well. So that's something that we are really bullish about in terms of the market and the impact that it can have. An area where there's a much slower market to develop, uh, but I think the impacts could be significant for graphene, C 
seems a little pedestrian, but I think the impacts could be very significant. And that's that's just using graphene to reinforce a rubber. And when you look at the rubber industry, it's really dominated by by tires. And one of the key things about tires in use on on a vehicle is obviously how long they last and how robust they are, but also the rolling resistance of the tire. And that really governs a lot about how efficient a vehicle is. Most vehicles lose as much to the rolling resistance losses in a tire as they do to aerodynamic losses in a standard driving cycle. Wow, I never would have expected that. Oftentimes, the smallest things, the things that are most overlooked, are the things that can be the most impactful. It's the little optimizations that oftentimes lead to the biggest results for the economy, the world, and making humanity better. And things are about to get even more awesome, so make sure you've got your headphones popped in and the volume kicked up. And so graphene ends up not only strengthening the tire and improving its, potentially improving its lifetime, and you can think about all of the advantages that that has in terms of safety for drivers, in terms of um, you know recyclability of tires and rubber, which is always a problem. But it also improves significantly the, the rolling resistance and improves the fuel efficiency of the vehicle. And it can improve overall fuel efficiency of a vehicle uh, between 3 and 5%. Um, and when we looked at the different applications, you look at using graphene and batteries and, and electrochemical storage devices, which are exciting applications, and everybody's looking for better batteries these days. And we looked at the impact, environmental impact of the entire projected electric vehicle and hybrid vehicle fleet on the U.S. And of course, only a small percentage of vehicles in the U.S. are anticipated or expected to be full electric and, and hybrid electric, even by 2025. But just by replacing the U.S. vehicle fleet tires with graphene-based tires, the impacts in terms of emissions, in terms of oil use, in terms of uh, other environmental impact and, and rubber recycling and uh, use dwarfs that of all of the impacts of the projected full electric and hybrid vehicle fleet by 2025. And that effect's coming primarily from when your tires aren't quite fully pressurized, so you're getting a little bit of squish factor, so to speak. Right, yeah. And there's always, even you know, if you have it inflated perfectly to standard, as the weight of your entire vehicle bears down on just those four contact points of your tire with the road, it, it deforms your tire, it squishes your tire. And as the rubber springs back, you're working that rubber really hard. And in essence, how much uh, energy you're losing to that work that's going into the rubber, how much heat and noise, et cetera, is being released instead of just perfect spring back and go around again. That's that's what the primary impact is. So I imagine you guys haven't explored this yet, but have looked into the future. You talked a little bit about space. I imagine also with automobiles, just overall reducing weight and increasing efficiency of vehicles seems to must be pretty high up on the on the priority list. Yeah, it really is. And you know, I think that's something that will happen in a couple of different stages as we look at it and just how the industries respond to to a new technology. And so we see sort of a first stage of graphene being introduced into structural components and composites where you're just trying to take the same component, in essence, 
and reduce its weight and use graphene to do that. There's a second stage, which I think is the part that gets really, really exciting, where you start to see systems being designed from the ground up based upon the capabilities of a material like graphene. And that's where I think you'll see really significant impacts on how much uh, structures and vehicles weigh and therefore what their efficiency and capabilities are. So I do think we're just sort of entering that first stage right now. Uh, where graphene is getting out and actually into the market in structural composites. And so it'll be probably a good five uh, to 10 years before stage two even really starts that people accept graphene as a material in the marketplace, really understand what its properties are um, and what it can do, and then start to design things from the, the ground up to use graphene. And that's where you'll see just some incredible improvements. In terms of incredible improvements, what would you estimate for a a percentage reduction, maybe for like an automobile, a rocket, a a plane, et cetera? Oh, gosh. You know, um, there are uh, lots of different ways to slice and dice that. But when you start to look at the overall impact of graphene in the structural components, in the electronic components, just things as simple as uh, in a vehicle, a car or an airplane, you have a, a number of different electrical boxes. And those are generally metal um, so that they shield the electronics inside from outside electronic noise and interference. And vice versa, they're not emitting a lot of a noise and interference. You know, just being able to produce that out of a graphene composite that is both conductive and strong and lightweight, all those little advantages, you could quite literally cut in half even some of the really advanced uh, composite designs now and and gain that sort of efficiency. And the follow-on to that is you're not only gaining efficiency, in a lot of cases, you're reducing cost by reducing the amount of the other materials you're utilizing. You're reducing environmental impact by using less material uh, to begin with. And you're also reducing cost through labor time. When you think about current carbon fiber composites, they're usually laid up, whether they're laid up by machine or by hand, layer by layer of of carbon fiber prepreg. And you introduce graphene into that system. You now need fewer layers of carbon fiber. And it not only reduces the weight, reduces the material cost, but it also reduces the assembly cost. So just on multiple axes, both the weight, the cost, and in you know overall just raw materials impact, you could easily cut all three of those in half simultaneously. I know graphene and carbon fiber are both relatively expensive currently. What, what are the costs now? How are they manufactured? And then where do you see that headed as scale likely increases? Yeah, I mean, carbon fiber as a material is is expensive. But I think one of the key things that has been holding back carbon fiber is really the processing. In a lot of cases, you're still talking about hand layups of uh, carbon fiber composites. So, you know, layer by layer, placing the carbon fiber mats down in and then impregnating them with epoxy and then uh, curing that in an oven and so that's where the real expense comes in. There's a lot of great work being done in the automotive industry to utilize thermoplastic resins with carbon fiber instead of pure epoxies um, and try to improve and reduce that cycle time. A lot of great work in automation of the layup, et cetera. 
And so it's not really a material cost issue. It's more of a manufacturing issue at this point. And I think a lot of the same can be said with, with graphene. When we look at graphene, there are a number of applications where right now it is a very cost competitive. And that's simply because you don't need very much of it to impart the properties that you're looking for. So if you look at, say, the rubber work, you don't need to have something that is 50% graphene um, in rubber to obtain these really unique properties. You need something that is below 10% graphene to impart those properties. And so um, it's, it's not terribly expensive even when graphene is being made at a relatively small scale. Now, graphene prices uh, should and, and will come down. Um, but again, I think it's more of learning how to use the material very efficiently that will, will have the real impact and processing the composites rather than just a pure raw material cost. What's the state of metamaterials, material science, and how the, the evolution of composites is happening currently? What's state of the art? That's the, that's the term. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the... The interesting things about graphene, but I think as you were sort of alluding to, the materials evolutions in general uh, recently has been uh, multifunctionality. And I remember when I was way back when I was an undergrad, multifunctionality was one of those buzzwords that everybody was talking about in terms of composites and structures. But the way people addressed it or what they called multifunctional was was almost laughable. And now we're getting to a state where it's really uh, critical to the materials moving forward. And so you look at something where, you know, the the skin of an aircraft or the skin of your car in within just that one material is multi-layered, it has gradients in it, and it is serving multiple different functions at once. It is both a structural component, it is um, an electrical component, it either has uh, parts of the composite that are carrying current, or it is shielding parts of the the car from noise. It is also uh, able to do things even as far as integrating in energy storage into the structural components themselves. So starting to look at how do you integrate battery functionality into these layered composites. And I think that's some of the most exciting stuff that we see coming through with, with materials is the fact that your, your clothing can now become your electronics. The shell of your airplane is now serving a role of functions from EMI shielding, electromagnetic interference shielding to, you know, stealth capabilities to communications capabilities, all of these things, as well as serving the regular structural roles. I know I've seen, and I think a lot of listeners have probably seen in sci-fi, you'll have people wearing clothing and the clothing generates energy. Essentially, you can increase slightly the resistance of clothing so that you're able to generate energy for use in XYZ. It would also probably make your people quite less uh, McDonald's obese. What are, what are some of the unexpected uh, unexpected use cases that people don't talk nearly enough about that you would be excited about 10, 20 years down the road? You know, I think that uh, w- one of the things we're really excited about is just seeing what we have as everyday devices right now. You know, your watch, your phone, your computer, etc. I think all of that is going to be integrated into what you are wearing. 
And so they're not really discrete devices. They're just part of what you, you have with you. And I think not only from a technological standpoint is that pretty cool. I mean, all of these things right now that we are trying to force to get smaller and smaller and smaller to get the devices to be sleeker, et cetera, are now just going to be integrated seamlessly in, in what we're wearing anyway. But I also think there's there's potential for some interesting societal impacts. A lot of the issues that people have now with electronics, et cetera, is that we are so glued to them and, and they're so present in our lives. And right now, they're, uh, they interrupt our lives as we pay attention to the electronics instead of the, the people around us. And I think what you can see is a world where your electronics are with you, and so you have access to them whenever you want, but you don't need to ignore everything else in order to take advantage advantage of that fact. And so it's present without being a disruption. And I think that's sort of something neat about the current technology. Now, you can take that a step further and start to look at all right, now what happens when we aren't just integrating into clothing, we're integrating into tattoos, we're integrating into implants, contact lenses, etc. And I think that from a technological standpoint, it's fascinating stuff, but then starts to open up a whole separate set of uh, societal issues. It does, but let's go there because it's always interesting. Where do, you right. see, where do you see us headed, both in terms of possibility and then realistic probability for some of those topics, wearables, uh, tech on or in individuals, and as we become cyborg or genetically enhanced in some ways? Well, you know, personally, I think the, the wearable tech is neat. You know, I think the costs are going to come down. The technology is going to advance to a place where it's not just a, you know, fitness monitor that you're wearing around your wrist. It really is your entire electronics ecosystem in your in your shirt. That feels like a real shirt. And, you know, I think that the other part of that 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 we think about is in terms of how products are designed and how they are used. Warning, warning, John's about to drop an awesome knowledge bomb and an incredible quote. This is something that so few people have thought about, and yet it defines paradigms and defines where we head to as a society, especially as technology advances and how we can do a better job or create a competitive edge in the process. And in a lot of ways, our phones, our watches now, these things are designed to be what they used to be. So our phones are now our computers, and they're designed very much the same way that that laptops were designed, and laptops are derived from these old desktops, and the desktops were things that you know were a much uh, rarer commodity, and they were used by more people and had longer lives. Right now, your average cell phone lasts less than than two years, and so really, we should be designing these electronic devices to be disposed of and or recycled rather than as these semi-durable, completely non-recyclable components. And you think about your Tupperware, I bet, you know, your Tupperware in your cabinet, uh, uh, no, at least mine is, is significantly older than my phone or my computer, et cetera. It's also just fabulously recyclable, right? It's a simple system. You can recycle that plastic, no problem. And so figuring out how to design wearables and electronics so that they they are what they truly are, which is a garment that will uh, wear out and be hopefully recycled within a year or two is is the goal. And I think that technology can can do that. 
I know Apple uh, has sped that up the the process of the slowdown just by updating your phone. <laughs> they they slow it down for you just so you can grab a new one just in case. Exactly, and and you know that wouldn't be quite so painful. There's the cost aspect of it, right? Of course, but it wouldn't be quite so painful if you knew you weren't throwing out a whole lot of you know rare earth elements and precious metals and lithium, et cetera, when you got rid of your old phone, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's horrible. I know, uh, I know a guy, he ran something called the Rainforest Connection. Basically, they would take old cell phones and set up sensor networks throughout uh, rainforests. Apparently, you can use the smartphone, even if it's an old component, you can use the, the, the audio monitor and the GPS to be able to monitor for illegal logging, etc. So there is some things that people can do with old phones. I think the problem is, though, just the society we live in. We live in a society where people rarely, if ever, think about reusing or reducing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so fun to hear about people repurposing things and reusing them for for good. And as an engineer, I think part of what we should be looking towards is how do we use all this new technology to design things for what they actually are, which in a lot of cases is something that people are going to want to upgrade quickly. And so it should be recyclable. It should use... um, or modular. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would be very interesting. Is that how you see is that how you see clothing being electrified, so to speak? Having attachments or having things that just kind of get plugged into? Or are you seeing the guessing that the the circuitry, the wiring, et cetera, will be done, possibly using graphene and then directly in embedded? No, I think it it will be a combination of the two where you're really doing the things that either require contact with the body, uh, require large surface areas, can be easily and cheaply applied to the fabric components, et cetera. And then that there be modules that you can attach to that, like like cufflinks or buttons, and uh, integrate in swappable electronic components. And so I think that's a big part of the economics of wearable electronics. And it's also a big part of being able to upgrade and and have a lot of different selections in terms of the apparel. As long as they don't look like cufflinks and you don't look like that guy. And we get, <laughs> we get away from the Apple AirPods. I got to imagine the AirPods fall out of people's ears all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Apple was clearly designing to make it stand out, but I don't think functionally it's great for running, et cetera. Right. No, no. I've uh, I actually have still held on to my old uh, wired earphones for exactly some of those reasons. Be careful on those new phones; they won't even let you use the wires. They, uh, I think, there is progress, but I think oh, with a lot of the big tech company, Apple specifically, it's removing functionality so that you have to buy an adapter. Seems to be <laughs> it seems to be common, unfortunately. I think we've bashed Steve, uh, not Steve, we've bashed Steve's company enough, but. I want to jump now into other technologies. What other technologies, trends, et cetera, are you most tracking or excited about? You know, I think one of the the big things is always the combination of information flow and and what and and content, right? And so that's just a, a fascinating area where there's a lot of of upheaval going on right now. And so you look at what we used to do in terms of landlines shifting to complete almost wireless now most of us don't have a landline anymore and what the next generation of that will look like and how fast we will be able to move data and how we will use that capability and then you know the huge change in content 
that really is the the big data demand. Everything from from gaming to the fact that the the main <laughs> broadcasters right now just have very little relevance compared to a Netflix or an Amazon uh, Prime. My son doesn't even recognize what CBS and NBC stand for anymore, and and barely knows of any of their content. While you know he's watching Netflix every day and he's engaged with Xbox games every day. It's just, it's a huge sea change in content. And I think the technology behind driving that, that data flow is fast. One good effect of that is there's much fewer people that are tuning into cable broadcast news, which is just incredibly opinionated and shows you the world is burning inside out. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think there are pros and cons to, to all of these types of shifts. What, uh, what do you do to, to stay focused, to stay active, to stay mentally sane running a company that I imagine is growing incredibly quickly, has a ton of pressure and a ton of potential? In, in terms of just personal uh, you know, yoga style stuff or in terms of within the company, how we structure things to, to handle it? Let's do both because both are relevant. Okay. I mean, I guess it, in the company, it's, it's constantly reminding each other. I think that boiling the ocean is is not the right thing to do, and especially at at a small a small company. I think even at a, at a big company, and we we talk about the things that Apple does, which might seem a little annoying sometimes. But one thing they've done beautifully is stay very focused on a small collection of items and build those into huge ecosystems, which obviously has created the the most valuable company in the world. And, you know, I think all of us are susceptible, uh, at least here, and you get a bunch of creative people, uh, not just on the engineering side, but other sides as well. And you give them a technology which can go into 50 different things and you get a little distracted sometimes. And so I'm certainly susceptible to it and, and ask people to remind me <laughs> to, to stay on course as, as well as I reminding them. So I think that's really been the key is that that's a, a feedback loop and a constant mantra. It's incredible um, how hard it is to do the things you know you should do, but yet life gets in the way. Yep, that is that is definitely true. Yeah, it's the important versus the the urgent or the even the apparently urgent, right? What about personally? Any life hacks? <laughs> I don't think I have any unique uh, life hacks. Unfortunately, I w- I wish I had some. But uh, I, I think for me, it's just trying to make sure you get a little exercise in there uh, at some point during the weeks to, you know, burn off the, the tension and, and get everything moving. And uh, great distraction for me is watching a lot of wrestling these days with my, my son, who's a high school wrestler. So that can get you wound up as a parent faster than anything else. So I thought uh, you meant WWE for a second. <laughs> No, no, unfortunately, nothing that colorful. So, yeah, but but that tends to make you forget about anything else that's going on when it's just your kid out there doing his thing and and competing. Everything else melts away for a few minutes. Yeah, you kind of you kind of remember what's important then. It's a, yeah. it's always interesting. Full estates generally do that. What uh what are the biggest problems that you would like to see listeners address that aren't being addressed adequately? Hey, listener, have you ever thought about starting your own business? Well, you know the two best ways, right? 
A, scratch your own itch, find something that's painful for you, that's painful for a lot of other people and fix that problem. Or B, listen to someone like John or get in an industry where you can become an expert like John and then think about these types of problems. John's going to list out some really interesting opportunities here for people that are interested in great opportunities to build a business. And I encourage, if you really want to, to learn more from people like John or by being in industry so that you can tackle these big and seemingly important problems. You know, I think uh, one part of it is that trying to push for, again, things that are, are designed for how they should be used. We should be pushing the major companies to come up with recyclable, uh, low-impact electronics. We should be pushing for more durable, durable goods and ways to upgrade them rather than just throw them out. I think repair, upgrade, modularity, et cetera, is something that has completely gone by the wayside, that it used to be just, just an easy fact of life. And, you know, I think that's, that's part of the big thing. I think the other part is with the information flows, the data flows, the uh, content, et cetera, one concern that we always have is, is privacy, et cetera, and that's really coming to a fore in a lot of cases now and authenticity. And so I think that's something that, you know, hopefully there is a a trend for a information to be used responsibly. And if people are are willing to pay for that, that obviously moves the market. And so that's a, a big trend I think that's out there right now. And it's something that we as just an average consumer can help to impact if if we start being willing to maybe pay a tiny bit for services in order to ensure a certain level of authenticity and ethical use of data. It's funny though, because how many people would actually pay for Facebook? I think most people kind of realize that it it's kind of a waste and yet there it's, it's almost more of a habit. Slash <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess if you ask people to pay five or $10, the way you pay for your net script subscription these days or your New York Times subscription or whatever it is, but you know those yeah, are kind of good for you. <laughs> I don't know. Would would people do it? Um, I, I, for one, certainly would be willing to do that. I think their biggest problem would be all the best customers would be the ones who would subscribe, the ones who would advertisers want to reach anyways, and then they don't want the ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a problem. But hopefully, you know, you never know. They're making enough off the subscriptions that they can do that. I, I mean, I did hear recently that Netflix was starting to think about trying to insert some some ad in between shows in a series or something like that if you're watching. And I thought that was an interesting development. It seems like they might alienate a little bit of their customer base, but I'm sure they know that far better than I do. Yeah, they'll probably split test it with X percentage. Uh, one last final follow-up question on that. A, how do you feel about your son using social media? And B, how does your son feel about social media? <laughs> you know, I think... From my uh, entirely unexpert experience and opinion, they have just a, a radically different uh, approach to it than we do. Uh, it was funny, you mentioned the other day that sending someone a, a text or calling someone seems so formal. And that was, that was a wild realization on my part, that things have progressed to the point where that's the, the formal interaction rather than writing a note or something like that. And so it is obviously just a part of everyday life. And I think that that's something that we have to accept. I think the difficult part, you can try to get your kid, et cetera, to be responsible, to be thoughtful, not to say things that that they may regret, et cetera, 
or, or that are unkind all you want. But then even if they're doing that, what's happening to all of their data? And, you know, how is that going to impact things moving forward? Uh, that's a little bit scary to think about. And I think there was a radio broadcast just recently that I, I heard about, you know, warning parents to be careful about posting things about their kids' birthday parties, et cetera, because then people are using that to determine your birthday and using that to help them steal identities and, and access to accounts, et cetera. And so, and it's not even their choice, right? You're posting this about them and they didn't even choose to disclose this information about themselves. And so it's that part that I think is as big a concern as, as anything else in social media. You know, one part seems solvable in terms of trying to, to coach your, your children. The other part seems like a, a little bit bigger bigger issue. Yeah, it's definitely, there's some larger societal issues there. Those are a whole nother can of worms. We don't need to open that up at, at this point, but I want to give you the chance now. Tell me a little bit more about Vorbeck. Where's the best place for people, especially enterprise buyers and VCs can find out more about you and what you do? You know, we, uh, we obviously have a website, which is vorbeck.com. Uh, and there's not everything that we do is, is on there, both from just a speed of development uh, standpoint and because of some of the, the customers we work with. And so we really encourage interested parties to contact us directly through the website if there are things of interest in graphene or to give us a ring on the old phone. That always works too. Where did the name for the company come up, uh, come from? I, I Google searched Vorbeck and I found Paul von Leto Gorbeck, which is your last name in Vorbeck. So I don't know if you named the company after yourself and an old ancestor or what the story is. You know, it's related to that, but that isn't the reason the, the company is called that. You know, when we were first sitting down and, and contemplating uh, starting the company, we threw out literally hundreds of different names. And we didn't want to be tech company number 563. And we didn't want to be sort of goofy, made up name. And so we looked at a lot of the companies in the materials business, et cetera. And a lot of them were sort of older family names, DuPonts and things like that. And so we threw up a bunch of old name, family names, et cetera, and looked for one that was unique enough that the website was available and all that good stuff. And that's, that's how we came up with it. That's pretty awesome. I've never heard of a story like that, short of like a, a men's fashion company looking through old British names or something. That's awesome. Yep, that's, that's what it came down to. And that's the, that's the nitty gritty, folks. You never see, the, never see the truth, but the truth is always interesting. Thanks for coming on today, John. Really appreciate your having me. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you've enjoyed this, Fringe.fm, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share this with a friend if it's been beneficial. Cheers. God, I can't wait to pay my taxes. Have you ever thought that? What about the government is such an efficient way of making the world a better place? I can't think of a single person who would make either of those statements. Well, there's good news. Did you know you could make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe.fm? Fringe.fm is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3, a nonprofit, a charity organization. That means that you can make a donation and write it off 100% on your taxes. And all of that goes towards our mission of making a better, more inclusive, and abundant world. You can quite literally multiply the impact that we're able to create with a small donation. Please visit fringe.fm slash give if you care about our mission and work. And please consider supporting our efforts. You're quite literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. 
If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.